0: All right, well, welcome to part five of our series called CORE. For the last four weeks, we have been talking about uh, the, the God's plan of salvation. Took uh, weeks one through four, talked about salvation, and now we're transitioning. And we're talking about, okay, what does it mean now that I'm saved? You know, what's next? What does God have for me? And the reason that I called this series CORE was because these are foundational Uh, messages that we need to understand as believers. And sometimes we grow up in such a Christian culture here in West Michigan, we assume everybody knows the gospel, so we never preach the gospel or share the gospel or talk about some of these foundational truths. And I call it core because if you guys went to high school, you probably all remember that there were some core courses that everybody had to take. And the definition of core curriculum is a set of courses that are considered basic and essential for future classwork and graduation. There's some things that you just need to know. And so I kind of put a bunch of messages together that I think are foundational in Christian faith. So specifically in the series, we're talking about what is salvation all about and how does salvation impact me? So during the series, I've kind of been repeating myself quite a bit, kind of going back and reviewing the previous messages. and I've been doing that strategically just to help us to remember what these core messages are all about. So before I uh, jump into a little review, I want to read a quote by uh, my favorite David Platt. You guys notice I refer to him a lot. He's probably one of my favorites. I read him a lot. So here's a quote by David Platt in his book, Radical. It says, fundamentally, the gospel is a revelation of who God is and who we are and how we can be reconciled to him. Yet in the American dream, Where self reigns as king or queen, we have a dangerous tendency to misunderstand, minimize, and even manipulate the gospel in order to accommodate our assumptions and our desires. As a result, we desperately desperately need to explore how much of our understanding of the gospel is American and how much is biblical. And in the process, we need to examine... Whether we may have misconstrued a proper response to the gospel and maybe even missed the primary reward of the gospel, which is God himself. I love that last part, that we might have missed the primary reward of the gospel, which is God himself. And I wanted to start with that quote because we talked about salvation the first four weeks. Now we're going to talk about what does salvation mean for me. And it's easy at this point to start thinking, okay, what's God going to do for me? And you seek what God's going to do for me. Now granted, God's going to do a lot of good stuff for us, amazing stuff for us, and that's all good. But we can't lose track of salvation as always to seek God. In the process of seeking God, we find all those good things in our life. We always have to prioritize, so I want to I open with that. So let's go back and start out with uh, uh, core one that we talked about. Core one, that God is the holy and just creator of all things. We meet God in the garden where he created Adam, where he created Adam and Eve in his image. And he put them in the garden, he said, enjoy the garden, have fun, have a good life, but I'm going to give you some responsibility. See, even before there was fall, even before there was sin, God created us to work, to work towards seeing his purposes accomplished. And then God said, but I'm going to have you one rule. You need to submit to me. I'm God. You're the people. Submit to me. And we know what happened. Man sinned. And so that's our core too. That we are created by God, but we're all corrupted by sin. It says in Romans 5.12 that when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death, death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. The Bible goes so far to say, because of the sin in the world, we're enemy of God, that we're an enemy of God and we don't even know we're an enemy, and we don't even know we're lost and we don't even know we're going to need to be saved. Then the Bible goes so far to even say that we're children of the devil. That's kind of a tough one. But in John 8 verse 44, it says, "You belong to your Father, the devil." And you want to carry out your father's desires. See, this is who we were before our relationship with Christ. But in our American culture, we have such a tendency to think, I am born in America, I automatically go to heaven. We think heaven's our default. But scripture doesn't say that. We need someone to rescue us, and that's where we come to core four, three that Jesus alone is able to remove our sins and restore us to God. In 1 Corinthians it says, you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. So sin entered through one man and now restoration is going to come through another man. And see, this is the heart of the gospel, that while we were dead in our sins, that God made a way to rescue us. And this brings us to core number four that we can be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourself, it is a gift of God. Not by works, so no man can boast. See, it's clear from Scripture that salvation is a gift that God gives to each of us. But we need to believe in Jesus Christ. But sometime in our culture, we kind of think, okay, well, I believe God exists. I believe in Jesus. Boom, I'm saved. So that's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is that you believe that God exists. You believe what Jesus did on the cross. You believe that you are a sinner. You believe the Bible is true. And then you commit your life to it. See, a lot of people use the illustration of a chair. You can say, I believe this chair is made of wood, I believe it's made of metal, and I believe it has strong screws to hold it all together. You can believe all that. But see, then biblical faith says, I'm going to sit in the chair because I trust the chair is going to hold me up. And that's what God wants us to see is that we don't just believe, but we put our faith and our hope and our confidence in assurance of his word so that brings us to core five today justification and adoption that because we are justified we are adopted into the family of God See, it's really important that we understand what happens after we are saved because God wants every single part of our salvation to influence every single part of our life so that's where we are today kind of going back past salvation okay what does this all mean See, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus paid for our sins and that we're justified before God. But do we really understand what it means to be justified? Do we really understand what it means to be declared innocent from God for our past and from our sins? So we often have a hard time understanding and really accepting justification that we're innocent. But then we also have a hard time understanding that God loves us so much that he adopted us into his family. See, one of the most powerful scriptures in the Bible that a lot of us talk about is Romans 8. We quote this a lot. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. He lived the life we could not live. See, as Christians, we quote that verse a lot. We quote that God can make all things work together for good. When things hit our life and things happen in our life that just are difficult or hard or we didn't see coming, we often quote that verse saying, but we have confidence that God can make all things work together. No matter what happened, God can use that for good. So we take confidence in that. But there's sometimes in life we wonder, can he really do it? Will he really do it for me? Especially if God saved you from a background that is difficult or hard. You wonder, can God really take those broken pieces of your life and put them back together again? And sometimes you can believe that for someone else, but it's hard to believe it for yourselves. See, so we know it in our head, but do we really believe it in our heart? And that's kind of a real struggle for us. See, when God declared us innocent over our past, over our past sins, it kind of gives you the picture that you're in a courtroom, and a judge is there, and he looks at you and says, you're innocent. And you're all excited because you're like, yeah, I'm innocent, I'm free, I don't have to go to jail, I don't have to pay the penalty. But then you walk out of the courtroom and you think, but you still feel a little guilty because you know what you did. You're glad that you don't have to pay the consequences, but you know what you did, so you live with guilt. And because you live with guilt, sometimes you have no expectation of anything good that's going to happen in your life. Or you live with no expectation that God can take the brokenness of your life and put it together. So what does it mean that you're innocent or justified by God? We look in Galatians, and the Galatians... uh, 2 verse 16, it says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we look back over our life and we look at the indiscretions that we did or the poor choices that we did, and we're quick to just continue to feel guilty about them. And God wants us to see that you don't have to feel that guilt and the condemnation because he declared you innocent. God understands none of us could obey the law. The only way that We can obey the laws because Jesus obeyed the law. Mm -hmm. And so Galatians 2, verse 16, it repeats itself in the second part of the verse. It says, so we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one is justified. See, what this text is saying is you can't keep the law. Only Jesus can keep the law. But we get saved and we have this idea that now I have salvation. i got to try really hard to keep the law. And don't get me wrong. We do need to follow Christ and obey his commandments. But we're never going to obey them on our own. That's what the law showed us, that we couldn't do it. But what Galatians tells us, you keep running to Christ. Because Christ is the one who obeyed the law. And that's why we're innocent. Our innocence begins because we receive Christ's innocence. We received every virtue of Christ when he was on the cross in exchange for our sins. But sometimes some of us feel so guilty and so condemned over our past that we never move forward. We kind of live in our past. We live in our mistakes. And God doesn't want us to live in our past or live in our mistakes. See, not only did he declare us innocent, not only did he give us his righteousness and give us freedom but he also adopted us into his family. And I think adoption is probably one of the biblical truths or teaching that's probably one of the hardest things for a lot of people to understand. Not understand because you can't understand uh, the the mechanics of it, but understand the feeling of love that God had for each person when he said, I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to adopt you as children. See, Galatians 4, Verse 4 starts out and says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. And you're wondering, why adoption? Why didn't he say, as my beloved children? Or as my good children, or some other descriptive word to talk, but he, God said adoption. And it's powerful the meaning behind it, of adoption and what it means. And I'll have to tell you before this message, I probably really didn't understand the spiritual ins- significance of adoption until I really studied this. It's a really powerful, powerful teaching. And I think it's hard to sometimes really understand the effort that God went to to adopt each of us. And so, to, I know there's a lot of families here that have adopted children. You know, my heart goes out to you and uh, my respect for you is incredible. So I think sometimes we look I think sometimes it's easy to look at adoption as an act of charity. But I think adoption shows the heart of God and probably the most powerful illustration possible. I think adoption is probably a symbol of God's compassion in a way that's hard to describe. So I, I just, I'm just amazed. It's a, a beautiful, beautiful way to express God's heart. So to all of you people who have adopted and your families, That's awesome. I have great respect for you. OK. So hopefully I'll pick up and get a little faster after this. so all right. All right, so adoption, let's start let's get a little boring, go back to the Greek. So what does adoption mean? If you go to the Greek lexicon. It means to formally and legally declare that someone who is not one's own child is henceforth to be treated and cared for as one's own child, including complete rights of inheritance. See, in the Old Testament, there was not really a concept of adoption. There was no concept of being adopted by God as his children. And the reason he couldn't have that is because in the, the, the verse I read earlier from Galatians, how it talked about in order to be adopted, you had to be redeemed from the law. And there was no way to be adopted in the Old Testament because there was no redemption from the law. There wasn't Jesus. So now that we have Jesus, we can be redeemed from the law and we can be adopted as his children. So adoption really doesn't come into play until you get to the New Testament. And so if you lived in the New Testament time and suddenly you hear these apostles and these people going around talking about of adoption, what would you be thinking so you'd be very, very surprised that someone would actually be talking about adoption, because see, in the uh, in the <coughs> old New Testament days, we have to always remember that the New Testament was written by a lot of people who lived under the Roman Empire, to people living under the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire was not a very good government system at all, and they had a lot of laws and a lot of rules and a lot of regulations. And one of their laws was is that you could disown your biological child any single time you wanted to. If you didn't like your teenage kid, you could kill it, you could sell it as a slave, or you could abandon the child. That was pretty much the culture. You had to have a good reason, so you could say, a kid kind of back-talked to me, okay, they're out. So a lot of people would get rid of their kids into slavery. But when an infant was born, the midwife would deliver the baby... And after the baby was born, the midwife would lay the baby on the ground. And the father would come in the room. And if the father picked up the child, the child would be assimilated into their family. But if the the father, for some reason, didn't want that baby, the midwife would bring it to one of several different obscure locations through the Roman Empire where that child would be left to die. Somebody might come and adopt that child. Maybe somebody would go there and say, OK, I'll take one of these. But usually nobody came because a lot of the children that were abandoned was because they might have some medical issues or some kind of reason that the family didn't want them. Or there's a lot of <coughs> different reasons that a family would give up a child and kind of put them in these obscure locations. But once in a while, a family might decide, okay, I will adopt one of these babies, or maybe you know an older child that the family was going to get rid of. Somebody might want to adopt them. In that case, the Roman law was pretty strict. If you adopted a child, it was yours for life. No matter what that child did, you could not get rid of that child. See, the Roman law's attitude was, that first child that you had biologically, you really didn't have a whole lot of choice. You got what you got. But now if you're going to adopt, you know exactly what you're getting. So because you know what you're getting, that you've got to keep it for life. So, there's actually four different, uh, there's four different uh, provisions under the Roman law for if you adopted a child. The first one was that child would be a permanent part of your family, that your parents, you can never disown a child once you adopted a child. The second provision was an adopted child received a brand new identity, any prior commitments, responsibilities, and debts were erased. The third thing is that the new rights and responsibilities were taken on by uh, the infant or child, so the new child would get new rights in the family and responsibilities. The final thing is the concept of inheritance was part of life. It was not something like in our culture, it begins when somebody dies, then you get inheritance, but in that culture, your inheritance starts when you're born. And that's what it means to be joint heirs in all the possessions of the parents and fully united to the parents. So God uses the culture of the day, the customs of the day, and says, okay, these four points of the law, that's part of God's heart of adoption and what God does when he adopts every person. He adopts for life. He gives you a brand new identity. He says your old is gone. But he gives you new rights and new responsibilities and says now from this day forward, you receive your inheritance from Christ. So if you're part of the Roman Empire and you're listening to God is adopting people, it would certainly raise a lot of curiosity for you. And see, this is a picture that God gives us of adoption. It shows God's tremendous heart and love, that he would go and look for the most vulnerable in society, that he would look for those that nobody else wanted, that he would look for the child that's left, to die on its own because nobody wanted that child. And that's what God wanted us to see at the heart of adoption. That his compassion and his love goes to the most vulnerable, the most marginalized, the most neglected. He wanted us to see that he goes for the broken. He goes for the scattered. He goes for the hurt people, the disappointed people. The ones that are so messed up that people left them for dead. See, God didn't have to pick you up, but God chose to pick you up. And so we have to ask ourselves do we think that a God who went through all the work to save us on a cross, all the work to die for our sins, who went through all the work to pick us out of a bunch of hurt and broken, that he's not gonna fulfill his good plans for our life, if he went to all that work. See, there's a powerful word in the Old Testament called compassion, and compassion is used to describe God's love and his plan of restoration. But when the the word is used as a, a noun, it also means womb. God wants us to understand that his compassion is always in a place of protection. That God always wants to protect us as we grow and heal. And I love this verse in Deut- Deuteronomy. It says that God, your God, will restore everything you lost. He'll have compassion on you. To me, his compassion is that he is going to heal you in protection, and he'll come back and pick up the pieces from all the places where you have been shattered, scattered. That's what God wants us to see. So he wants us to understand that before Christ came into our life, our future was no more secure than a baby laying in a pile with other babies to die. Maybe we had a good job, maybe we had good income, maybe we had a good family, but without Christ in our life, we have no more security than a baby that's left for dead. And that's the picture we see of adoption. That's the heart of adoption for God. See, God could have overlooked us. God could have overlooked us in our brokenness and said, that's way too much for me to deal with. That's just gone a little too far. He could have easily have done that. He didn't have to bend over and pick us up because we know from Genesis, when he created Adam and Eve, he bent over and picked up dust from the ground and created something out of dust. Instead of picking a broken person, he could have created a brand new one. But when God created the, picked the dust up off the ground, the scripture tells that you breathe life into the dust. But see what God does when he picks up somebody broken. He breathes life into us as well and gives us a brand new life and a brand new start. I love the scripture from John 6. It says, in the very words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The same word that says, would Jesus breathe life into the dust he created man and woman is that same word spirit right there, which means breath of God. And what that scripture says right there, every time God speaks to you, it brings new life in you. Every time you read the Bible, you are pouring new life into yourself. And I don't care if you read the Bible and you don't understand what you're reading; you're still bringing pouring new life into, your, into yourself. And that's what God wants us to see: is that He's the God who would rather pick up the broken one than create a new, brand new one. He'd rather restore. And that's the heart of adoption: bringing restoration. And I think this is the core of the core of God's heart is adoption and restoration and bringing someone into your family and renewing their inheritance in Romans 8 it gives us a read for all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God and you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. So that God wants us to understand in the heart of adoption is that we have a good father that loves us and cares for us and he wants to free us from slavery. In Acts 8, we have a very interesting story of Philip and an Ethiopian eunuch. And Philip is in Jerusalem and the Lord tells him to go down to Gaza. I have a plan for you. And on his way, Philip meets an uh, Ethiopian eunuch. and this man worked for a powerful king and queen. And now to explain to you what a eunuch is, <clears throat> this was a man that was probably castrated at a very young age in his life. He could have been born that way, but the more likely in that culture at that time, he was probably castrated as probably a young boy, because they are raising him to be a slave to serve a king and a queen. And the reason that they would castrate young boys is so they would never develop in their body. They would never um, have a sexual appetite, so the king and queen didn't have to worry about that going on in, 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 their, um, in their palace. And their size would be limited. And so more than likely, this young boy, this, who's a man now, was put into slavery as a very young child. And somebody thought they would mutilate his body to make him somebody that he never wanted to be. And so that's the guy that the Lord tells Philip to go find and meet. See, the scripture tells us that this Ethiopian man was, just came back from Jerusalem. He went down, the, the scripture tells us he went to Jerusalem to worship God. But we know from Old Testament law because of that man's physical condition He was declared unclean. According to Old Testament law, that man was unclean and he could never go into the temple. And there's absolutely nothing that man could do to ever become clean again. His body had become defiled. And there's no amount of sacrifices that he could have done to be made clean again. So this man made this huge pilgrimage all the way over to um, Jerusalem. And we know he could never enter the temple. And probably he probably traveled two or more weeks to get there. And the scripture tells us that when he was on his way back home, that's when Philip ran into him. Actually, read the text. It's, it's very interesting. I don't, I don't have time to read it all right now because I have to go home soon. But the text tells us that the eunuch is riding in his chariot. So it was interesting because this eunuch, he, he, he was raised as a slave probably to do personal care for the king and queen. But because he had some success in his life, he was able to rise up to, he had a good position. He was kind of more of their accountant after a while to care a lot of the finances of, of the kingdom. And so he was riding in his chariot on his way back home, and Philip happens to be walking by the chariot while the eunuch is in the chariot, and the eunuch is reading from Isaiah. And this is what the eunuch is reading in the back of the chariot. See, in that day, if you read, you'd always read out loud. So the eunuch is reading this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from him. That's what the eunuch was reading when, when Philip is walking by the chariot. And Philip looks in the chariot and says to him, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch's like, no, I have no idea what I'm reading. Jump in my chariot and explain it to me. So Philip gets in his chariot and they keep going on and the scripture tells us that Philip explained to him what that meant. Because the eunuch said to Philip, he said, "Who is this author talking about? Who is this prophet talking about? Is he talking about himself, or is he talking about somebody else?" Because you wonder if, when the when the eunuch was reading that, if he thought that kind of describes my life. I was led like a sheep to be slaughtered. There was nothing I could do to stop it. I was overtaken. And he was deprived of justice. Nobody would do anything for him. And he has no descendants. He can't have any children. And so he's saying, my life was taken from me. So you wonder if the eunuch's wondering, is this about me? And the scripture tells us that Philip, it doesn't give us a whole lot of details. It just tells us that Philip explained to him who Jesus is. And then as the chariot kept going by, they came by uh, some water. There's a powerful scripture. I think I love this. It says, The eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And I think a lot of times we ask ourselves that question what can stand in the way? Because that eunuch had heard over and over again his entire life, You're unclean. There is nothing you can do to redeem yourself. He probably was mocked from the time he was a young boy and his body didn't develop like everybody else's. He was probably mocked and ridiculed. And so this eunuch is saying, is there anything that's going to prevent me from being baptized? Is there anything I've done in my life that is so bad I can't be baptized? And I love Philip's response to him. The scripture doesn't tell us that Philip said anything. But it tells us that Philip took him down to the water and he was baptized. See, that's God's heart. When you come to biblical faith in Jesus Christ, there is nothing that's going to separate you from full inheritance. There's nothing that's going to separate you from getting all that God has for you. If he is going to pick you up and rescue you, he is going to go all the way. And that's what he said to the eunuch. There's nothing to separate you from being baptized. But it's easy to read that and say, but that poor eunuch, how do you ever recover from what happened to him? He never got the chance to get married, have kids. What's God going to do about that? Was it really fair? Can God really cause things to work together for good? Or is this guy just going to die someday, saying? Well, it's as good as it gets. So you go down a few chapters later to Isaiah 56. And it says, and don't let the eunuch say, I'm a dried up tree with no children or future. Don't let the person say, I have no future. For this is what the Lord says. I will bless those eunuchs who keep my Sabbath day holy. Do you know what it means to keep the Sabbath day holy? It means to rest. See, that's God's requirement. If you want me to make this work out together for good, you got to rest and let me do it. you got to stop figuring out how it's going to be done. I'm going to figure it out. Stop worrying about how it's going to work out, how what's going to needs to happen next. But just trust in me. So the first thing the eunuch you do, rest. Don't worry about it anymore. And The second thing you do, just choose to do what pleases me. Just honor the Lord. Just submit to the Lord. Commit your lives to the Lord. And then, I would give them, within the walls of my house, a memorial and a name, far greater than sons and daughters could give. For the name I give them is an afterlasting one. I will never disappear. See, that's what God's saying. Don't worry about the future. Don't worry how it's going to work out. Don't worry about the just. For I will give you something far greater than you could have ever have had. Just trust in that confidence. Stop trying to make it work out. But God's going to do something far greater to redeem and to restore. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are a good God and a faithful God and a loving God. And Father, we thank you for the compassion that you have for each of us as your children, that you promise to rescue us, that you promise to pour new life into us, and you promise to give us our inheritance, and that you take care of us. And I, Father, I thank you that you are good and faithful. Lord, I pray that for every person here, that you would help us to walk and rest as we wait for you to restore that would walk in confidence. Father, we thank you that you are a good and faithful God. We love you so much in Jesus' name, amen.